Military Veterans in Journalism proudly presents Sword and Pen. All right, MVJ, welcome to our webinar on extremism. I've been super excited about to do this. My name is Drew Lawrence. I'm the operations manager for MVJ. Um, this has been a, a webinar that's been a long time coming, one that we've planned for a while, and we are very lucky to have two of the foremost experts on the subject, specifically extremism in the military, uh, with us today, Andrew Mines and Dr. Daniel Milton. Andrew is from George Washington University's program on extremism, and uh, Dr. Milton is from West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. Just as a preface, both of them have done incredible work in parsing through really extremism from all sorts, domestic extremism, international extremism. I actually reached out to Andrew last year because he, both of them co-authored this great report on the military experience at the Capitol, what happened on January 6th. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about other forms of domestic extremism, international extremism. But really, what we want to get out of this is us as journalists and us as veterans who are journalists, uh, the best practices on covering this, looking at it objectively as, as much as possible, cutting through the noise of misinformation and disinformation, and then in hearing, of course, from these two experts that were nice enough to, to dedicate an hour of their busy time to, uh, to help us do that. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to, to Andrew, who's going to share a couple slides for us to get us started about you know what extremism is and some of the models that he uses to determine that as really a public health uh, issue. So Andrew, I'm going to turn it over to you. Are you able to uh, share your screen? I am, and and thanks, Drew, and thanks for setting this up. It's a real privilege to be with you all uh, this evening, and thanks for for being on so late. I have really only like two slides that I want to share with you all. Even before we get into the sides of you know international, domestic, right, left, whatever we're talking about, I think it's useful to start with some common definitions, and then like like Drew said, just some common approaches to to preventing extremism, and so. Really the most useful definition that I've, I've found as I've been working on this the last few years is one that was put forward by uh, Jan Berger and his book is literally called Extremism. It's, it's available online and I highly recommend it to, to everybody if you wanna go ahead and buy it and, and read more after this. But um, he defines extremism as the belief that the survival of the in-group depends on hostile action against the out-group. It sounds really simple when you put it like that. It sounds very broad too. But if you break that up into two component parts, right? The first half, the belief that the survival of the in-group, that is something about the belief system, the cognition side, right? So we're talking entirely about what people believe and there are a few things that kind of feed into that. Why do people believe that the survival of whatever in-group they identify with, um, why are they in crisis? Uh, why is the survival of that in-group threatened? And so there are, bunch of actors that go into that. There are a bunch of narratives that go into that. And so one of the most common things is some sort of common crisis narrative. And that can be a number of different things. It means different things to different movements, to different ideologies, to different small cells and small groups. But there's always kind of a core crisis narrative there. Could be something about impurity, racial impurity, for example. Could be something that's driven by conspiracy theories, conspiracy beliefs about um, you know, government overreach or any number of things, dystopia, apocalyptic narratives for a group like the Islamic State, uh, and a bunch of other things that feed into this, this belief that an in-group is, is threatened. 
there are different types of mis and disinformation uh, that feed into those belief systems that make people believe that they are threatened, that their in-group is threatened. There are state actors and non-state actors um, that are actively contributing to foreign malign influence operations that play on those narratives and seek to amplify them in online spaces. And so there's this really convoluted and complex array of actors and narratives that feed into the belief side of the equation. And then there's the behavioral side of the equation, which is hostile action against an outgroup. And that can mean a number of things too, but we're talking about the behavioral side here. And so that's a wide range of activity. And that could be everything from doxing people online in your designated outgroup, whoever it is, to on the very extreme end of the spectrum, genocide. And so it really covers a wide range of activity. But I think when you think about it like that, it really opens up the range of things that we consider to be extremist beliefs and responses to. Um, those belief systems. And so I think this encompasses a really wide range of activity and it gives you a better sense of both the behavioral side and then the, um, you know, the actual belief systems that go into making someone an extremist. It's pretty wide ranging, but it gives you kind of a core base to build off of. And then when we talk about prevention, you know, just a lot of terms that you, you folks have probably come across and that, um, you know, especially working in this space, you come across quite a lot. This is a little bit of a one-on-one, so I apologize if this is like boring or old, old for some people, but what we mean by, by prevention really falls into these three separate categories. If we talk about a public health approach, right? If we talk about a whole of society approach is another thing that you, you've probably also heard pretty commonly um, cited by researchers in the news and elsewhere, which is, you know, breaking it down into different component parts of a, of a public health approach. And it, starting with tertiary on the far end, right? That's something has happened. How do we respond to lessen, lessen its impact or prevent it from happening again? And by that, we could look at, let's say, somebody who traveled from this country to join the Islamic State overseas. We have to work on bringing them back to this country. How do we bring them back to this country to prosecute them here, to rehabilitate them? What does that look like? But they've already done something wrong and we need to work on it. Secondary prevention. Something's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We know someone, the, the someone who's going to do it. How do we intervene to slow that down, to stop it ideally, or to reduce its impact if, if the actual thing is inevitable? And by that, we could look at what the FBI does to work interventions against uh, folks who you know, are about to commit and mobilize to violence. And then there's the primary prevention side. And this is where the field has been moving. Our field has been moving for some time now, but this really wasn't on the table, even maybe like five, six years ago. But this is where you're probably starting to see a lot more efforts from government conversation, especially on the Hill, um, where we're moving towards, which is something really hasn't happened yet. But how do we build broader resilience to keep it from actually happening? And so a, a good example is um, media literacy, online training, teaching folks how to, you know, they are going to engage with myths and disinformation online. How can they build resilience against it? How can they work to identify it, to see how it's playing on common crisis narratives and all those kind of things? So we talk about a whole society approach. We're really talking about the range of actors across those three points of prevention that come into play to work on that. And that's everything from the education side of working in our, in our schools, all the way down to on the far end, you know, working on the far end in, in terms of like counseling and, and reintegration and rehabilitation. So there's a huge range of actors that are involved, cuts across federal, state, local government. And it, it really is a broad range of actors that when we talk about a whole of society approach, whole of government, whole of society response, 
that's what's required. And so I think that's the direction that a lot of the conversation has been moving in, that a lot of the policy has been moving in. And inevitably, a lot of the, a lot of things you guys are, are writing on and, and bringing to bear to the public. And so I just wanted to start and give us that kind of common base to work with. And uh, I'll, I'll hand it back to Drew, but maybe Dan, if you have any thoughts too, I want to open it up to you as well. Thanks, Andrew. Actually, could you put, uh, do you mind while you're still, uh, you know, holding the power of co-hosting here, if you could uh, throw back up your previous slide? Yeah. Because um, one thing that I think is potentially interesting to think about for this audience is, you know, as you think about in particular the role of the military or of military experience in fostering somebody's extremist kind of journey, I think it's an area where we haven't really done a lot of great theorizing uh, to understand it. There's not a lot of great research, and that's part of what I think Andrew and I are interested in continuing to work on. Thinking about this particular slide, I think, really brings that home. And so, you know, just think about the extremist as needing to both adopt this mindset of we need to survive as an in-group against something that an out-group is doing, and then the second part being, okay, now that we've adopted that mindset, how do we actually carry out an action in defense or in furtherance of that mindset? And I think it's very easy for a lot of folks to see on that second part, how military kind of experience or military veterans might have a little bit of a leg up, right? Because when it comes to carrying out hostile action, potentially there is a little bit more familiarity with tactics and procedures and weapons and different types of things. Where I think we're still struggling is that first part of the equation. Is there something about being a part of a military venture that leads you to, to adopt this mindset? And some of the work that I've done actually goes back and kind of does a very brief look and says, hey, like, at earlier points in the military's history, there were specific kind of institutional features that might foster an in-group, out-group mindset. Think about, right, policies of discrimination against certain populations, right, is saying, okay, like, that's legitimate for there to be an in-group, out-group when the institution itself is telling you, yes, there are two different kind of, you know, segments of society. A lot of those policies have been rolled back. And so I think what we've actually started to see more recently in a lot of the cases that are emerging is not so much that there's an institutional feature of the military that is kind of, you know, potentially encouraging some of this in-group, out-group dynamic. But instead, what you see is just kind of the general things that you would see in other society. When people are, are kind of exposed to new experiences, at times that creates an opening for them to kind of begin thinking about the world in this in-group, out-group fashion. And there are some military experiences that I think uniquely do that. Uh, think about deploying to a foreign country as being one of those where, hey, like I've never actually engaged with somebody from a, a Muslim population before. And now here I am not just engaging with them, but in sometimes, right, uh, an adversarial fashion, does it have the possibility of kind of furthering that? Of course, the answer is there's a ton of people who go through that experience, even within the military, and most of them are not extremists, right? And so there's still a lot of individual nuance that we're just not very clear on. And so I just offer that because I think Andrew's framing here is really helpful for getting us to move away from just saying, you know, military extremism, there's a relationship, but we don't really know a lot about it to saying, okay, how might that actually look? And particularly from a journalistic standpoint, this is one of the things where, to be quite candid, I think you all often have a leg up when you're kind of writing and investigating these types of stories, is being able to pry, uh, uh, pry it's not the right word, but pry open or peel back the onion on people's journeys, right? 
oftentimes the sad state of things is that as as researchers were reliant on kind of secondhand accounts. And, and I think sometimes those secondhand accounts through nobody's fault are relatively uh, surface level. And I think that there's opportunities as we continue to look at these different cases that are emerging to say, okay, like, do we see that military experience really played a, played a role in that in-group out-group dynamic? Or is it really strictly just the in-group out-group thing happens kind of organically independent of the military, but that hostile action piece is really important. So I'm sorry to talk a lot there, but those are some thoughts that are just kind of on my mind as, as I was going through that. So thanks, Andrew, for putting that back up. No, that, was a, that was an incredibly helpful introduction and, and provided a great framing and basis for, for some of these questions. And for now, just a, a couple questions to Andrew and Dr. Milton. So you talked a little bit about trends in the way that some of these things are looking. And when we talk about extremist trends, extremism in general is emotional. It can be muddled by everything from environment to politics, and it becomes very unclear. So recognizing that, it, in, um, that um, you know, non-clarity up front is helpful, but for us as journalists, as we're looking at, at trending you know, extremism, whether it's domestic or, or international, what are some of the things that you're seeing that could be helpful for us to parse through a lot of that noise? What are some of the trends that we should be looking for um, and some of the pitfalls that we should be aware of in our reporting? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to get started just because I think one of the best places to look for that kind of information is from intelligence community DHS assessments themselves. These are things that are put out very carefully. They are put out quarterly or yearly, depends on what, what you're looking at, but those give you a really good sense of how the government sees those trends developing and what their response should be. And I think those give you a really good pulse on trends as they move from you know month to month, but also certainly over the years. And so best two that I can think of are the ODNI worldwide assessment that comes out yearly. Um, that's a great place to, to think about, you know, not just domestic issues that we're working on, but um, internationally, as we look across the globe, you know, you ask us this question five years ago, and the biggest concern is hunger and violent extremism. Who's going to be traveling overseas to, to join the Islamic State? Who is going to be conducting attack at a nightclub, uh, at a place of worship? somewhere else on our streets here in the US on behalf of the Islamic State or maybe another group. Question today, the answer is, 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 is much different. It's lone actors, small cells, predominantly in the you know, militia movement, in the white supremacist movement. And those are the same trends that have been echoed in assessments made by ODNI, made also by DHS. And so that was gonna be the, the, the second one that I would point to. The DHS NTAS, the bulletin that they put out quarterly, another great resource because that gives you a little bit more of a up on the beat quarter by quarter idea of what is going on and how the government sees those threats uh, evolving so you know in the realm of kind of government information let me also just throw out there and again probably something that you all are well aware of but whenever you know the fbi director is appearing on the hill or when you have an important figure who's going to testify before a committee usually the information that comes out of those is quite quite insightful sometimes you even see a little bit of space between the formal assessment, which has to go through a, a pretty deep coordination process within the U.S. government or within the intelligence community, and what the FBI director or the director of national intelligence will say in, you know, in a session of Congress, right? And some of those are obviously closed session, but the, the U.S. government has been trying to do a better job about being somewhat transparent about how it's thinking about these things. So those kind of assessments are, are helpful. Um, if I could just throw one other thing out there in terms of cutting through the noise, 
Um, I think everyone is familiar with kind of the concept of, you know, and the value of triangulation, right? And so obviously I think the government and its updates are a good one. I think you also need to find and identify a source of information from kind of the research academic realm, the non-government realm, because often what you find is that those individuals are willing to say things that the government is not prepared to say or can't get the kind of authority to say. Um, and so I think about, you know, since this is a, a group of friends, you know, I think about the, um, you know, the kind of recent willingness of the government to kind of attach, in my view, the correct threat value to domestic extremism, and particularly that of the violent far right. There were academics who I think were saying some of these things uh, in advance of kind of the government, you know, years before that. But I think that it just took a little bit of time for them to get traction. And so I kind of think about it as, okay, I definitely want to kind of focus on those things that, that Andrew pointed out. And then I would also want to have kind of a small cadre of academics. And for better or worse, they're easier to find on Twitter these days that I'm kind of following in kind of the research and work that they're doing, because I think often they will sometimes be in advance uh, of the government. Look, everyone's got an agenda, but they're not generally trying to <laughs> advance uh, the same types of political points. And so I think sometimes you'll find a willingness to say things that, that you won't find uh, in, in kind of government spaces. Um, and to that end, if you're not following the program on extremism, if you're not following the work that's coming out of the acronym of AIDS, me, Andrew might know, NSITE at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, like these are places that are going to be on the front end, I think, of academic work in this space. And so those are some kind of research centers. And obviously there's individual kind of staff and faculty attached to those that are worth following. But those are a couple of key nodes that I think are worth paying attention to. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, as we established in, in the beginning with the definitions that Andrew had brought up, you know, when you talk about extremist groups, you, you talk about there's this uh, concept of, of a perceived otherness or like a fear of like apocalyptic. The other side of it, the uh, oppressors to this, the quote unquote oppressors to the extremist group, especially when we're talking about domestic extremism, how would you recommend that we as journalists reconcile with the fact that our, our information is, is coming from the government, which is seen as the oppressor to some of these groups. How do you reconcile that a lot of these groups, you know, dislike the elites, which could, you know, that could be perceived in the academic circles and in same with being a journalist, like the, you know, the media is, is under attack from, from some of these groups that, uh, you know, perceive uh, the media to be an arm of, of whatever the oppressor is. What would your best recommendation be to, to kind of combat that and reconcile, you know, those, those factors? Sure. I think, um, I mean, Dan said this earlier, but triangulation is, is a great one. And, and as he said, not relying solely on those government um, disseminated products and also going to research and academic outlets as well. Um, I think that's that's a great way to, in a single piece or over a, a series of pieces, really kind of flesh that out. Because if you do rely too much on one thing, look, the, I, I think there's also a simple fact of this, that there's just a certain population of, of your guys's readership that you don't have the ability to, in one piece, convince them that the, the government is not out to get them or something like that. You just don't have that ability. Um, a lot of folks that, that are going to read that and be thinking or be in the mindset that you're describing, um, especially if we're moving more towards an extremist mindset, it, you know, maybe one piece isn't going to accomplish that. There's also a lot of great studies out there that actually show that folks who hold these beliefs, some of them, especially, you know, if we look at stuff related to the, the January 2020 election for the, the 2020 election, 
um, a lot of them in their own words go out and try and do their own research, folks who still hold that belief system, right? And it's not just on, on singular sources of information. Um, there's a good study, I think, by um, the Atlantic Council that looks into this. Uh, and that shows that folks are actually pretty actively trying to seek out their own research. And so I think as much as you can, having very having a very basic base of concepts that you talk about. So when we talk about definitions, having those definitions very simple and accessible to people, um, having a broad range of sources that you go to across the research and academic spectrum, but also within government as well, um, I think is, is a great way to do that. But also recognizing you know, just coming back to it, recognizing the limits of what you can do with one piece and, and whose minds you can change with, with one piece, um, because it does take a whole of a society approach, which is the, 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 the second slide that I showed there. Um, so Daniel, any thoughts? Um, yeah, and I'm certainly not the best person to, because um, this is, you know, obviously you guys are the professionals in the, in the journalism realm, but I do appreciate you that you recognize that, uh, Look, when it comes to extremists themselves, they're going to find a way to make any sort of government or academic or kind of journalist story that is unfavorable to their worldview, the result of some conspiracy, shoddy reporting, like whatever, like that's just that's just what they do. Like, um, you know, if you've spent any time in extremist kind of, you know, telegram or encrypted like <laughs> They, they have more discretionary time than somehow the rest of us do put together, right? And this is how they spend it. But what I do think is critical to note is that, and look, this is the case with extremism. You've got the people who are probably like anti-extremists or working to kind of counteract them. You've got the kind of hardcore extremists. But then in the middle, you have this very important population that can lend support, sympathy, whatever you want to call it, in either direction. And I think that those folks tend to genuinely be interested in doing the right thing, whatever that is. And I think that this is where the media plays such a critical role in producing information that is really valuable for people who are trying to kind of understand what the facts are. But one of the things that's been interesting to me, to be honest, as I've talked with my friends and, and kind of family about it is, you know, they'll often come to me and they'll be like, you know, what's going on here? What's the ground level truth? And they're they're getting their information from what I would characterize as some guy on Twitter who's just bored and tweeting stuff out or probably Facebook, right? They're all older generation folks, let's be honest, right? And so this is where they're getting their information from. And I'm like, look, you, you guys, you realize that there's a difference between the journalism of a guy on Twitter and an individual who's part of a reputable journalistic venture. And to be honest, they aren't aware of that, right? They think that a journalist is someone who picks up a pen and starts writing. They don't realize that there are standards of ethics and norms and professional development and all of this kind of stuff. Now, this is the part where I'm just not sure what the connection, like how the connection is to an actual tangible thing that could be done. But I wish that people who were reading a story understood what went behind it, right? Understood the checking of sources, understood all of those things. Is it as simple as, you know, at the end of every story, there's a link, hey, want to learn more about how this story was put together? Now, obviously, every story can't have a background, but even like an understanding of the, the different things that go into a piece, I think, add credibility to it, right? So that they realize that, you know, Drew didn't just go out and talk to the random person on the street and say, that sounds good to me. Like, like that's, that's what I'm going to go with, right? But honestly, that's how a lot of folks who are, I think are in this kind of middle space 
think about what journalists do. And, you know, as I've had the opportunity to get to know a lot of people in your field, it's just it's just crazy, right? I mean, that's not that's not how it works. Um, and so I think that helping people understand not just you know the punchline about a particular story, but as best they can, the 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 actual practices that go into it, I think, is really interesting. Sorry, Andrew, I think I cut you off. No, 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 that was that was great. I just um something else something else came to to mind that I was I was talking about with a colleague uh, just yesterday. It's it's hard for you guys. I, I can't appreciate it enough, like the, the tough job that you guys have to do on a daily basis. Like you're entering a space where there's like very limited options to be neutral uh, or to, to just be just be entirely fact-based. You're entering an environment where you, you're having to combat influence operations from other actors, or it could just simply be mystics and other types of uh, malinformation. But I think a, a colleague put together a model of what do malign influence actors themselves do to erode everything and to kind of exacerbate extremist tensions and polarization in this country. And I think it's a good model to keep in mind every time you're writing a piece to think about these three things and to be doing the exact opposite. What do what do those actors do to try and erode our 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 society basically? They try to erode trust in authority and expertise. Um, that could be medical professionals, that could be um, government officials, it could be a number of, of different authority figures, but trying to erode trust in their um, character, in the, the very positions they hold, and, and etc. The second one is trust in democracy and democratic processes themselves. Um, again, 2020 election is a great example, but trying to erode trust in the very things that make this country this country. And then the final one is social trust, trust between people, and so I think if you think about those three things every time you approach a piece and think about how, what are the different types of narratives that I'm engaging with around all of those three things and how can this piece promote the opposite, if at all, I, I think is a great way to, to kind of internalize that and then approach a piece, so. So I, I'm glad you guys brought up credibility and trust because you know, that's kind of a, the reason why we wanted to have this specific webinars because you know for better or for worse or for deserve it or not um veterans and you know bring a certain credibility into the space that they they you know enter into uh whether it's politics or, or whatnot and that's why we have have veteran journalists that are, that are here listening to this because you know there's a there's a way to uh use that credibility to you know the story's benefit you know obviously keeping it true but all you know kind of cutting through that um that otherness that we had talked about can you tell us a little bit about the what you think is kind of the best way to leverage that in an appropriate way without you know coming off as bias or or be or you know terse or touting service but emphasizing that like hey there's broad range of experience that veterans bring to to reporting whether it be combating extremism face to face on an deployment or um, doing it at home while at uniform and, and dealing with with it in the own ranks can you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean i will offer just a couple of thoughts, but with the very important caveat that you all, you all probably know better than I do, you know, how, how to think about these things. But as you were talking, Drew, like, it's so interesting, right? This, and, and I don't mean this to offer any sort of real equivalency, but the same reason that veterans are valued in extremist movements is the reason that we ought to value them in your profession, right? Uh, which is very different than their profession, to be clear. But 
I think that there is an amount of credibility. There is an amount of trust that is placed by individuals who have uh, served in, in, in the armed forces, rightly so. And the, the trick, of course, is that, you know, you're obviously not overtly a military person. Like if someone picks up a story and reads a kind of thing, it's not immediately apparent that that's the kind of credibility that you bring to it. I mean, you know, simple things, which I, I assume are the case, but to be honest, I don't actually know, you know, when someone clicks on your name and it says, you know, Daniel Milton is a journalist for X, you know, and does it say that I also served, right? Hope that for a lot of folks, and maybe that's not something that it could be, but it, by way of both providing truth and advertising, but also benefiting from that credibility push, hopefully that's something that is part of everybody's profile, right? Because it it helps a reader understand, yes, the potential bias, but also the potential benefit that someone brings to the table as they're looking at a story. Um, you know, obviously one can't, you know, say at the beginning of a story, P.S., I'm a veteran, so you should give me more credibility. Um, and so it's going to be those subtle cues that I think are, are kind of important, you know, making those references. It's not humble bragging. It's an important part of the thoughtfulness that you bring to your work. I think that, that those kind of, uh, what I, again, what I would refer to as subtle cues, whether it's a line in a bio or a quick mention in an interview or whatever the case might be that I think are probably the, the, the ways where you can still adhere to your own norms of professional ethics and performance while, um, while also uh, signaling the, the value that you bring to the table because of the experiences that you've had. Uh, Andrew, I don't know if you've got any other thoughts, but those are just some quick ones. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, just to build off of, of Daniel, maybe on the extreme end of what not to do is uh, don't, don't make a, a heroic narrative out of yourself. Um, and I, I feel like that seems like a pretty obvious thing to stay, state. But I've seen a lot of folks, you know, enter your guys' space and then podcast form, article series form, whatever. It, it becomes about them, the story. I've, I've seen this in like different um, terrorism reporting, different obviously extremism reporting as well, but like really centering themselves. And then it just, be, it, you just become lost in this cult of personality about the reporter or whoever is building the story and not about the subject matter, not about the so what, why is this important? Why are we working with this? But it's just like a, you know, like, like basically like a movie story. Um, so trying to avoid that as best as possible. Yeah. And this speaks also to what Daniel was saying, but like specifically focusing on cults of personality that involve folks who have military experience. We're talking about Stuart Rhodes of, of the Oath Keepers, you know, Bruce, Bruce written a piece about this. You guys are the best ones. You're the ones best positioned to engage that and say, hey, look, this is discrediting the military as an institution. Him taking his experience and trying to exploit that and exploit others is wrong. And as Daniel said, you guys are in the best position to use your own experience to say, hey, look, I know because I've been there and I've done that. So I think, I think really focusing on cults of personality, not <laughs> worst case scenario, not doing that, which I hope nobody on this call would, would think about doing that, but certainly calling it out in extremist movements um, and, and, and in smaller cells and all the way up and down the chain. So. I, I wanted to, um, I appreciate you, you mentioning that, Andrew, because it's a good transition into something we've talked about before, about some of the, the tropes that I'm going to say media as, as, a, as a whole that happens. So whether it's on, on Twitter or something like that, but there are a lot of tropes that are associated with this extremist reporting. Um, an example that we've talked about before is in terms of militia extremism, just because someone has a, a military background doesn't necessarily mean, means that they are that much deadlier or ex have more expertise in um, handling weapons or 
or things like that. And the militia, like we see, we see, you know, constant media reports about he was, you know, quote unquote, marked as a, as a sharpshooter. Um, when in reality, that's, you know, one of the middlemost qualifications for, for rifle qualifications, but, you know, it, it tends to get run away with. What are some of the, the tropes that you've seen that we should be aware of in, in our reporting and um, that, that you've studied in, in your research that we can kind of objectively pick through and say, hey, this is something that's wrong, but is often repeated. And this is kind of more where the truth lies. I mean, that's exactly it. Uh, Daniel and I wrote about this in our report back in uh, April 2021. We're, we're talking about the tactical ad or the perceived tactical ad. A lot of times it's not even there in some of these cases versus the strategic ad of folks with military experience to extremist movements, groups, ideologies. The strategic ad is that they add legitimacy. And that's probably one of the most important things. You know, putting up a stack formation or whatever, like is very basic things. Like I could probably do that, you know, going upstairs. You know, that's not that's not something about military experience that that we really need to dive into and and and, and you know analyze the hell out of. That's the the tactical stuff. But the the bigger missing the forest for the trees thing is is the legitimacy that folks with military experience who join extremist movements or groups the legitimacy that they bring, the normalization that they bring to those ideologies and those movements. And so that's the bigger picture thing. I, I think that often goes, goes lost. I think one of the things that's also interesting in some of the work that, that, um, that I've been doing or, and certainly that Andrew and I have been working on as well is, is that, you know, it's just the, again, you know, I mentioned how a lot of you know, folks that I speak with have a very poor understanding of what you as journalists do from kind of a professional standpoint. It's also quite shocking how many people have a very poor understanding of the military itself, right? And so it's easy for them to fall into a lot of these pitfalls about, well, if a person has military experience, they will clearly be more dangerous. Now, to be perfectly fair, there is also some research which shows that I think the the that is generally true and that there definitely are those who are more, I think, prepared and capable because of even basic military training to say nothing of more advanced training. But in general, I don't know that it's orders of magnitude different that it deserves the kind of status that, that we give to it. You know, think about the, the stories that, that are being written, you know, so-and-so uh, is, you know, uh, a combat veteran. Well, what does that even mean? Like, as you all know, you can be in a combat zone and have very little combat experience, right? Um, simply because of the nature of your, your kind of function. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that makes one service any less, but when it comes to reporting on their ability to carry out violent action, there's a big, there's a big difference there, right? I mean, their, their kind of ability to kind of roll with some of those punches. I think we also have to be careful, and Andrew and I really struggled with how to, to deal with this you know, there's there's potentially mental health tropes and and kind of things that that are easy to fall into, um, and again, that's not just something that it that kind of beguiles the uh, or bedevils the the kind of extremism angle. But I do think that there is a tendency, and and frankly, we've actually seen this play out not just in reporting but also in court cases where there's a kind of willingness to kind of lay one's military service on the line as a statement in their defense or in their kind of justification. And I think we have to be careful about unintentionally furthering those kind of things by prioritizing when it comes to someone's military experience, their injury, combat deployment, medals, like all of that is important 
context, but if that's the only thing that gets highlighted in a story, then that's the takeaway for somebody that like, hey, a highly decorated combat veteran. And you're like, well, uh, several of those were ribbons that you got for just being in the zone. Like, you, again, you guys know the kind of difference in distinction, but the public has no clue, right? Um, they, they just don't get that kind of stuff. And so I do think that that there is a need to kind of have a little bit of, of kind of nuance in how, even as it kind of relates to military, uh, experience that is reported. And again, it's tough because you have limited space and you can't give a whole explanation and so on and so forth. But but I think those are some things that that initially kind of stand out to me. Andrew? I was just to say, and you have limited time. I mean, like Daniel and I can sit on a report for, you know, however long we, we took to write, write the thing last year, but you guys have what, 24 hours to, to get on it before it doesn't matter for the most part. Or, yeah. or as you're or as you're seeing here, Drew, we can respond very lengthy to simple questions. So you know, obviously, <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all good stuff. Well, I, uh, there are one or two more questions on my end. I want to open it up to uh, both of you to, to kind of talk about anything that we didn't cover. And then I'll open it up to the group for questions. I want to talk a little bit about um, international extremism, because, you know, as we, as we pivot away from Afghanistan and uh, a lot of the public media transitions away from, from that sphere, obviously the story doesn't stop just because people stopped paying attention to it or just because the U.S. isn't, you know, in a certain place. What are some things that in, I, I know both of you have studied international extremism. Andrew, I know you've done a lot with ISIS. What are some things that you would like to see reported on in terms of international extremism that has kind of by, gone by the wayside, but hasn't stopped? I think the best you can really help the public understand the difference between when ODNI puts out an assessment that says, we think that between six to 12 months from now, there is a, there is a likelihood that there will be a foreign directed attack or there will be an attack with links to ISIS in country X or something like that. Helping disseminate that down to what that might actually look like and what are the different avenues that would look like. Because that means very different things. At the height of ISIS's days, they had an external operations wing um, focused in major cities in Iraq and Syria, primary English language speakers that were thinking day and night about how to network people in the US, in the UK, in other Western countries to conduct attacks on their home countries. They were talking with them, they were pushing out propaganda, they were coordinating and planning those attacks from the caliphate. To my knowledge, there's not there's not an ISIS entity across the globe right now that I think has that, that quite that capacity. Um, I, I I just don't think that's the case right now. I haven't seen anything that suggests that. But you know that's different from homegrown violent extremism, as we understand, an inspired attack. You know doesn't necessarily need to have been in contact with um, an ISIS affiliate or the Islamic State for itself. But distinguishing between those two things and which is more likely, which is the, you know, how those threat avenues are different and helping disseminate that to, to, to people. Because a lot of times people see those kinds of assessments and they're like, oh, great, you know, like there's going to be a terrorist attack coming out of Afghanistan in six months from now. And that's really all they do to engage with, with, that, with that piece of news. And so I think helping to sparse that out for folks and really distinguish between those different avenues and those different channels. And what it means for ISIS at its heyday in 2014-15 versus where we are today. I uh, have a, a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, I think that the kind of consistent struggle from a U.S. national security policy perspective that, that we've kind of gone through is the, you know, what I refer to, uh, and it is certainly not original to me, is the kind of, you know, six-year-old soccer ball kind of analogy, right? If you've ever been to a soccer game with 
your six-year-old, you know, the coach spends too much time getting them all like properly positioned. And then once the ball starts going, then it's just like a big herd chasing stuff around. And I think that there's obviously a, an appropriate balance to strike, but um, I do fear that that we are missing some of that kind of international threat boat. In our very important pursuit of what's going on domestically, I do think that there are still some of those international threads. And I'll just kind of talk about one thing where I do think there's probably a kind of a fruitful venture there is, you know, the the kind of underlying root causes that drive extremism, particularly in the international space, as it relates to groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they, ha they haven't gone away, right? Uh, and in many cases, they've just gotten worse. Uh, Northeastern Syria, in terms of kind of a humanitarian crisis, is uh, is is getting worse, not better. And there is a tipping point. I don't know where it is. If I if I did, I'd probably, um, you know, be able to be more useful. But, you know, those things are going to be a large issue in the not too distant future. And I think that we're we're just kind of missing that boat in part because they're just really sticky problems and in part because we'd like to ignore them uh, as a policy kind of, we just don't really wanna deal with that. And I think that there is need to kind of keep a, a focus on those things um, because they will drive both the actual ability of groups to reorganize and recruit and as those groups are able to keep themselves in the limelight, the kind of inspiration that they offer to individuals abroad to carry out activities and violence, like like Andrew has noted, and I think that we're we're missing those things, unfortunately. You know, and and there's a there's a variety of them that we could kind of talk about whether we're going to stay in kind of the Middle East, whether we want to go over to kind of the Pacific region, talk about some of those, or Africa. I mean, there's just there's all there's all sorts of what the 9-11 commission, you know, would have referred to as blinking red type stuff going on from a threats perspective that I think, I think we're not necessarily kind of tracking. Uh, and then the second thing, which frankly, I haven't seen anybody do a lot of digging into, but I think it's a really interesting signal of, of kind of the, the continued threat posed by international extremism is there had been a, a huge number of prosecutions of terrorists happening in countries around the world related to what's happened in Iraq and Syria in particular. And I think that those prosecutions, if they were scrutinized a little bit more, would reveal a lot more concerning of a threat picture than we are currently getting. And so, you know, most folks are aware of you know, something that happens in the U.S. space, an arrest or an indictment. You know, we we obviously had uh, recently uh, Allison Fluke, uh, you know, kind of that was an interesting one and, and, and obviously pre presented again just a real insight into how we think about women in extremism. Uh, and, and Andrew's colleague, Margolin, has done a really interesting kind of you know, stuff on this. There was a case in April of an individual up in Maine who was arrested for, right, possessing three IED type devices, right, and, and was potentially going to carry out a, an extremist plot. Uh, and so we generally hear about those, but people are unfamiliar that these things are continuing at CLIP in Germany, Sweden, France, right? There's so many individuals who continue to be arrested for offenses related to this stuff. And I think there's just not as much of a vantage point on it as, as, as perhaps there ought to be. I'm going to go ahead and, and open it up to uh, questions now. If you uh, have a question, please go ahead and ask it. Hey, everybody, and thank you, Daniel and Andrew, for being here. Um, this has been really informative. I want to backtrack a little bit and go back to domestic terrorism and the inherent bias that exists in reporting when it comes to domestic terrorism. We know that in 
the last several years, mass shootings have been overwhelmingly young, overwhelmingly white, and overwhelmingly male. And it's not labeled as extremism when there's not a clearly identifiable race or a clearly identifiable uh, faith, because we know that it's quickly labeled as extremism when it's a Muslim, when it's someone who is a darker skin, who is someone other than white, other, it's literally other than white. How can we be more responsible um, when race is not identifiable, when it's other than white, and when it's a religionist other than Christianity? It, it, it erodes trust in one community and promotes it in another. How can we be more responsible in reporting when we don't tell the truth about the fact that domestic extremism is overwhelmingly white, male, and young? I think um, the, one of the, the biggest kind of tensions that comes out of this, and, 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 and thank you for bringing that question up, I think it's a really important one. It's, it's, it's something we've been working on here at POE uh, for some time, which is like the lack of a domestic terrorism statute. The FBI, local chapters can come out and, and call things domestic terrorism, but they can't prosecute it. For being that because there's no criminal law that exists unless they were using a weapon of mass destruction or like a, a biological agent or one of the like eight or so things that make it terrorism prosecutable in nature right but we have a foreign terrorist organizations list and that that means that to your point all the all the other kind of ideological violence terrorism um gets labeled prosecuted that way and so i think having a good sense of the legal structure in this country at a federal level, at least for how we define these things, how we are able to prosecute these things and where there are gaps, are those gaps worth being filled? And then giving that to people in a really digestible way. And we, we have a bunch of products on this that I'm, I'm happy to share um, that really try to boil this down for folks. Um, because you're right, it is a huge gap in how we address this problem. It's also a reason why only just recently we're starting to see real government products speaking about it in this way. Um, and so I, I think I think it's a it's a great question and I'm happy to, you know, we've done a lot of things here at the program that that can help contribute to a better public understanding of that discrepancy. There's um and this is, you know, Andrew's got some great stuff. Uh, Aaron Kearns, who now works at the University of Nebraska Omaha uh, as part of Insight, actually has done some really great research on this very phenomenon. If you are not familiar with her work, I think it's it's worth recognizing. And I would just say that I think that this is where, in part because of the the legal challenges that Andrew has raised, but also uh, if I'm being perfectly candid, and obviously speaking as myself and not an employee of the federal government, I think that there is, uh, I think there is unfortunately just an underlying bias that that is beyond legal, um, right? And I think that we we need to we need to be frank in recognizing and kind of accepting that. Now, in terms of a solution, this is part of where I would go back to the value of triangulation of sources. The federal government is not going to be a leader in dealing with this problem. I wish that they would be. I really do. But my personal opinion is they're not going to be. And so I think it falls to other communities who are doing important work in these spaces to to help kind of provide a more accurate picture of what is of what is happening and about the fact that 
even if there isn't a domestic terrorism statute, which uh, which I think there's a very kind of legitimate debate to be had about that, we can still look at an individual's kind of activities and say, hey, like this fits the same mold that if it were a Muslim, we'd be talking about terrorism. And here we're like, well, we can't get ahead of ourselves and we got to talk, you know, whatever. Right. And, and unfortunately, if you rely mostly on statements from federal kind of that's what you're going to get. Right. And again, part of that is legal. Part of that, I think, is bias. And so I think that that just really emphasizes the need to draw on some of these other resources in your reporting, because I think you'll find that they have a little bit more intellectual latitude to be able to engage with these subjects in ways that that the government is just not going to be as, as effective on. And again, that's just my personal take, but I think it is lamentable. Drew, there couldn't be a short answer, right? It's just not happening. Thank you for even being willing to explore that because that's a question that's not often asked or answered. It's really, it's literally never answered. <laughs> so well, I, I just, I thank you for your willingness to even answer it. Thank you. I think that it is important if you go to you know, to circle back to the very beginning, if you go back to what Andrew said about a definition of extremism, there are clearly things that happen that fall in that definition that we won't call extremism. And I think that, again, for the federal government and for many state and local agencies, that's a legal challenge. Um, but I think that, that, that there are other parts of that that we need to kind of deal with as well. But I think that you'll find it outside of the government, frankly. Sorry, Andrew, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say very quickly, it's actually kind of a follow-up question for you, Daniel, but um, I've just seen a lot more folks in this space, Karen, to your question, starting to focus on hate crimes, getting funding from the federal government or from other places to focus on hate crimes in this space as part of a, a terrorism or extremism problem set. Um, I just, Daniel, I just, I just want to gauge your thoughts maybe on that and like, you know, for, from us as researchers, how that should fit into the, to this picture as well. And then for you folks as reporters, you know, reporting on that, showing, showcasing that, that trend, encouraging that trend towards us thinking about these things is not completely separate. It's also a great kind of question. And I think that unfortunately it's going to make the waters muddier not clear. And I think that that just comes down back to, we really need to be very careful when we talk about things like hate crime, extremism, mass shootings, about what we are talking about. And, and I think that the clearer we are, the easier it will be to kind of see the areas where those things overlap. And in some cases they don't overlap, but, but I just think we need to be much clearer about that than we are both as an academic community, as a federal government, and probably as journalists too, but that's not my lane. So I'll, I'll leave that to you guys. Carol asked a really great question. Can we also talk more specifically about extremism in the military? How can we better understand that in terms of domestic extremism? And to add on to, to Carol's question, the DOD has gone, especially after January 6th, kind of gone on a rip about extremism in the military. Let's say there's there's success in rooting it out of the military. What's next? Where, where are those, those people who have been rooted out of the military for extremism activity going to go? They're going to join the Patriot Front, right? I mean, this is, you know. I would just like to say that my, when I say in the military, I'm also understanding that in the broader sense, in the military and in, in the veteran community. And how much do we know about this, really? Uh, Andrew can obviously jump in and correct. Uh, short answer. Uh, not as much as we need to. Uh, there's still a lot of data collection that needs to be done. We don't understand as kind of per our earlier conversation, a, a lot about the different mechanisms that might actually intersect between extremism in the military. Um, Andrew and I are doing some work there. Uh, I'm working on a book on the subject right now that 
one of these days I'll get done. Um, but like, there's a lot of things that we need to be doing there that we just, we don't, but, but clearly I think we need to, to spend a lot of more time engaging in that. And, and although I certainly applaud the DOD's efforts, you know, as an individual who observed how that order kind of trickled out at the lower levels, I think there's still a lot to be desired. Obviously signaling from the Pentagon is good, uh, but the DOD is a very massive organization. And I think that the results were very uneven in terms of how people are thinking about it. So I do think there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. I completely agree. I mean, if you look at the reporting that came out of the working groups, December 2021 report, I think, or something like that. It was the a couple of the branches had no reported cases of extremism in the military, which I, I find quite hard to believe. Um, and so data is really important. I think between 2013 and 2018, there were fewer cases than in 2021 overall. Um, and a lot of that had to do with January 6th. But you know, from a, a, a trends perspective, from a data perspective, that's kind of hard to believe that over half a decade or plus, you know, there were fewer cases than in one year. Um, that might also be the case, though. But the problem is that we just don't have better, better, better data. And so I think holding institutions that are congressionally mandated and are responsible for giving us that data, holding them to account when those reports are slated to release, really kind of being tuned in and saying, all right, this doesn't look right. Um, there's something about this that just we're not seeing the full picture here. And so I think that's a really important thing to stay, stay cued in on. I know that we're supposed to have a hard stop, but given Andrew's, I knew, comment, I knew it was going to go on. So it's okay. I, I have to, I have <laughs> it's to. Okay. It's okay. It's a good conversation. One area where I think that, as it relates to extremism in the military, where there is probably excellent reporting that still needs to be done is on the relationship between DOD and FBI as it applies to prosecuting cases in the military. I can't offer a whole lot more about that. But I think that there's work to be done there that would reveal opportunities to improve and uh, how we're we're actually handling that stuff. Um, and so that would be one thing that I would just I would just submit for for consideration of the distinguished group here. Two more questions. Gretchen grabbed it. She asked, "Political polarization makes it ever more complex for so many reasons. How do we work on that?" I think there there's a research lab here in D.C. called the Polarization Extremism. Peril uh, at American, I'm, I'm going to botch the whole acronym, I'm sorry, um, Peril at American University. You should check out their work. This is exactly their warehouse. This is what they focus on. And specifically, you know, going back to that second slide on different phases of prevention, we're really looking at, you know, secondary tertiary is probably too late. You know, at that point, it's really hard to change people's minds and it takes a lot of resources to do that. On the primary prevention side, what can we do to, to combat polarization and to start like eating away at that? And I think some of the work that these folks are doing is great and packaging seven minute programs, like videos for folks that have high efficacy that work um, in certain cases, you know, how do we package all these different things to reduce polarization to um, in their, how they describe it, inoculate, but we can also call it build resilience against extremist beliefs, um, extremist information as it enters in the information environment. And so, they do great work. I, I think you should, I'm, I'm just going to plug them here. You should check them out. Thank you. I will definitely check them out. Obviously, if you're, if the question is coming about how do we as journalists, again, I feel just so uh, unqualified to offer you kind of thoughts, but 
How do you as veterans, I think is a very different kind of answer, at least for me. We did some work many years ago on kind of how people could counter kind of uh, Islamic State or ISIS kind of narratives. And one of the things that that research revealed was that it's not that people don't oppose those narratives. It's not that people are in favor of political polarization. It's just often that those who are on the extremes or those who are in favor of polarization are better and louder and more well-organized than everyone else. And so I think that there are lots of opportunities where there's just, you know, we the veterans, right? There's a lot of great causes who are trying to provide a united voice, not in favor of one political ideology or, or the other, but in favor of fairness, transparency, equality, like all of the values that I think undergird a functioning democratic system. And I think we just need more people speaking out in favor of those things, not about, you know, whether you've got a D or an R in front of your name, who cares about that, like, but about the kind of value that we can all bring to each other. So one of the ways what Daniel is describing is surfacing, and that's something you guys have all the power to do, um, surfacing folks who do this kind of work. We the Veterans is a great example. One of the ways that extremists work and the way that mis and disinformation work and the actors that promote it online works is that they insert all of these narratives fog the information environment and then program and flood it the way that they want it to go so that the narrative that emerges is the one that kind of has been fogging around but the truth has been obfuscated and then they surface other things to to kind of support that narrative as they're flooding the information environment you, you just need folks doing that on the opposite end too you know, you need to be, we need to be surfacing the, the work of veterans who do just the opposite. And so I, I can't agree with Daniel more. I'm focusing on folks who do really positive work in this country. Veterans, more so than most, is, is really important. We have time for one last question. Hey, gents, uh, Constantine with uh, military.com here. Um, wanted to ask, you know, one of the things that I know me and my colleagues have been reporting on a little bit more lately and have noticed is a shift from, you know, organizations that skew older, like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, to younger skewing organizations like Patriot Front, beginning to sort of creep into the news more frequently. You know, is is your research sort of suggesting that we're, you know, or have you guys looked into the the idea that what we're seeing here is kind of a a passing of the torch, a changing the guard amongst some of these extremist organizations shifting from like the, the previous generation to the to the newer one? I don't know that I have looked enough at that specific issue about kind of generational change uh, as it relates to these organizations, although I will note that it is something that all extremist slash terrorist organizations seem to struggle with from time to time. So I don't know that I have enough kind of of a, of a baseline to say that's what we're seeing. What I do find interesting is that Groups like Patriot Front do seem to be a little bit better when it comes to the kind of online activities, propaganda, meme space than some of these other organizations do. And I think that that does have a potential appeal to a younger generation. We actually saw a little bit of this even with groups like ISIS and others. And so the fact that there is generational kind of transformation may be true. I'm just not sure what the the ultimate kind of cause of it is, whether these guys are just better at things that those individuals uh, are, are familiar with, like some of these online spaces or, or not? I can just add the, the simple thing that uh, my colleague John Lewis does a lot of the domestic terrorism tracking here, and he, he has found that neo-fascist skull mass groups, Adam Lofton, the base, like really the hardcore neo-Nazi groups that folks with military experience 
tend to join or, or, or do join at the very least, there, there are folks in military experience in these groups, are younger. The, the, the people that are way crazier, have crazier plots, um, that are do doing probably some of the more awful things, um, they tend to skew younger. So we're doing some of that tracking here at the program. I encourage you to, to check it out. This has been great. Thanks for letting me be a part of this group. No, and thank you, Andrew. Can I leave you with just two cliffhangers really quickly? Um, of so first one is, I think there is probably a conversation to be had about how we report and think about big data and online activity when we report on extremist activities. I think that we have a potential for being infatuated with stuff that, that doesn't accurately reflect what's going on. So, you know, chew on that. And then the second one is uh, go to prison. Um, and I don't mean that uh, literally for yourselves, but I do think that there is also a kind of future challenge that is going to emerge in the extremist space as it relates to kind of prisoners and radicalization and them getting out later that we haven't explored enough in the United States. Random thoughts that came, but that's all I got. And thank you so much for letting us come and, and be a part of the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Milton. On behalf of MVGA, I just want to sincerely thank both of you for, for taking the time to do this. It's an incredibly important space. I'm hoping that we can you know, maybe make this a series if you guys liked us and you'd love to come back. Not to put you on the spot, but I'm asking you to tell us that uh, that you liked us. This is this is important for us, especially as veterans who are journalists, to cover uh, responsibly. And I think that we have the space to do it. And you adding and uh, contributing your objective research uh, is incredibly important for us to do that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to Sword and Pen a military veterans in journalism podcast.